This is C-SPAN's The Weekly. It has been 10 years this month since the civil war broke out in Syria. A decade later, the fighting has destroyed many of that country's oldest cities, killing more than a half million people and creating one of the greatest refugee crises since World War II. Just ahead, we get a better understanding of what's behind the bloodshed from a journalist who understands the country and the region. Not only does he report on Syria, but for two years he was held captive, at times facing inhumane conditions, including beatings, torture, and death threats. Theo Padnos chronicles his confinement in the book Blindfold, a memoir of capture, torture, and enlightenment. He also offers this outlook on the country's long-term future. Syria is in for a long, hard road. I I hope and believe that one day um, the outside world, particularly the Western nations like the G7 and, and, um, you know, will, will say we, on behalf of the people of Syria, we need to come to an accommodation with the Syrian government such that we resume diplomatic relations and we allow the students to study at foreign universities, come back and re-enrich the country with brain power. Um, they have like a huge brain drain going on there. But the near-term future is grim. More of our conversation with Theo Padnos, it's just ahead. But we begin with a look at our most recent military action in the region, that U.S. missile strike along the Syrian-Iraq border late last month, taking aim at a facility used by Iranian-backed militias. Here is Pentagon spokesperson John Kirby. Uh, This really was a defensive strike uh, meant to help protect in the future American forces and coalition partners, given what we knew those those structures were used for, um, right there on the other side of that border, to to, uh, to provide um, throughput uh, for these groups and their activities uh, inside uh, Iraq. So very much was uh, a, a defensive uh, operation uh, to, to protect our troops and our coalition uh, partners, as well as, as I said at the outset, to send a strong signal about our resolve. That from the Pentagon spokesperson, John Kirby. Theo Padnos is joining us from Vermont. His book, Blindfold, we'll talk about that in just a moment. But let's discuss the military airstrike, why it took place, what the U.S. objective was, and the significance of this region between the Iraq and Syrian border. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, allegedly, the um, pro-Iranian part of the uh, Iraqi military is um, harming U.S. forces in Iraq. And we are trying to send them a message, don't harm our people. Look, um, Syria is a broken country. They, like, have zero offensive capacity at this point. And um, the right thing to do is to negotiate a settlement with them, um, and which they would be very happy to do. They, they need everything, and they have relatively few demands. One of them would be, please stop bombing us. You know, they're, they're getting hit from the left. From They're getting hit from ISIS. They're getting hit from Israel. Um, and... Uh, they're getting hit from Turkey, and they have international jihadis coming in and blowing up the law enforcement authorities. The country is like on its knees, really, and they're, they're, they would sue for peace in an instant if we only gave them the opportunity. Our, our, our main issue with, with Syria, of course, is that we refuse to speak to the government. We believe that Bashar al-Assad is such an odious figure that we can't communicate with him. As somebody who spent two years communicating with odious people, namely my captors, the al-Qaeda faction in Syria, and also my fellow prisoners who were 
often ISIS commanders, uh, I I had to negotiate with these people for like food and permission to go to the bathroom and and you know um, please don't beat me. I did this every day for two years when human life is at stake, as it is in Syria. The appropriate thing to do is to negotiate and to not say uh, I my scruples prohibit me from talking to you goodbye, which is what we do with Syria and by the way also with with uh, terrorists when they have our own people. So I'm all for talking and not for bombing. I have to follow up on your phrase, a broken country. Explain what you mean. What is life like inside Syria? Why is the situation so dire? I mean, we have a, we have a very onerous um, sanctions regime imposed upon them at the moment, which prohibits even the most trivial banking um, connection between Syria and the outside world. So, so like their university students who would like to send off an application fee so they can educate themselves and come back and help the country. They can't do this. I mean, the entire country is, like, blockaded um, economically. And we we do this because, again, we're trying to punish the, the Syrian government. But the, it's, the Syrian government is, like, fine. They have ways to get their own cash in. And so are the bad guys among the terrorists, too, by the way. They also have their own ways to bring in the cash. It's the people that are suffering. And, um, you know, if we have any compassion or or... Like foresight, because the, the country can continue to collapse. It's like it's not at an end state of collapse. It can carry on for for a number of years. You know, slow motion collapse. There are millions of people that are doing their best to go about an everyday existence there. It's hard to get money enough to like buy fuel to um, heat up the kettle to heat up a evening cup of tea. That is the state that they're in. Um, nevertheless, those people kind of like are scraping enough gas just drink tea in the evenings and buy some cucumbers and some rice. Um, but that can also collapse. And then there are numerous minorities. It's not just the famous Alawites, this um, Shia-esque minority that is um, there may be 4 million people in Syria. Uh, the President Bashar al-Assad is a member of this religious minority. It's not only them. There are Christians. Um, there are Shiite. There are um, you know, different flavors of Christian. It's a rich tapestry or mosaic, as they often say in Arabic. And um, and it can be destroyed more deeply and more permanently than it has already been destroyed. So, yeah, we need to have compassion and common sense with regards to Syria. And instead, all we can think of to do is to just bomb them. When you were taken captive in October of 2012, one of the reasons you were traveling to Syria was to look for, quote, the deep, invisible causes of the civil war in that country. What are those causes? What do Americans need to know to understand the history of the fighting that's been going on in that country that's caused so much bloodshed, so many deaths? Um, I mean, it's a, obviously a complicated issue. The The easy answer is to say, listen, the Shia-esque minority in Syria, which is the Alawites, um, and the Sunni have, and the Sunni majority population, maybe 80, 85% of the people, have been at each other's throats for centuries. This is true, but they've also coexisted peacefully for centuries. Um, it is, the religious tensions are easy to inflame in this part of the world, and they have been inflamed by the broadcast um, television. You know, in from there's there's satellite TV piped into Syria, and they have their own satellite TV, and and uh, just as our um, news environment is contentious and polarized, theirs is like 100 times more polarized. And the 
pro-government people come on and say, come on the TV and um, and instigate, or, or let's say, inflame the passions and sort of the anti-government people. This has been going on, you know, since in a very serious way since the beginning of the violence there. So that's a cause. But I mean, to me, the biggest issue is that these outside actors, namely um, like the Gulf countries, and they, behind them there's CIA and the U.S. and even the European governments and um, are, are sending in um, weapons to arm the rebels. Now, if they just stopped arming the rebels, the rebels would be forced to like speak and say what they want. I lived with these guys for like two years. If you ask them, what do you guys want? You know, it, like, what does ISIS want? Okay, they want a caliphate, but that's not... I mean, they could even negotiate that. Like, can we have some religious self-determination? Which, by the way, they've had for a long time. But um, they, they just kind of refuse to pronounce reasonable demands in words. Instead, they throw bombs. So the, the reason why they're throwing bombs is because we're giving them to them. We've given, like, so many um, high-tech weapons. They've really overwhelmed the Syrian military and have caused the Syrian military to go off and get weapons from Russia and Iran. And just like a hateful arms race, every time we throw in a new kind of weapon, well, the Syrian government is forced to go off and get some more odious and harmful and destructive kind of technology that will blow up the rebels. And, of course, it's the women and children that suffer the most, and young people in general who are easily deceived by these um, unscrupulous commanders who want recruits. There, there is a religious element to this thing. I, I would say the deepest cause is economic injustice. There's a tiny 1% of elite people that um, are living off the backs of everybody else, and there needs to be some more just distribution of the national wealth, um, which does exist, by the way. Um, and, and the... The way to like establish a more just dispensation in Syria is for all the countries of the world to come and help, particularly like uh, uh, countries that have expertise in um, in how best to share the proceeds from natural resources. And well, this is an established problem in the world that people fight over natural resources, but there are also established solutions. And and by not communicating with the Syrian government at all, we have. Um, like forbidden them from accessing such expertise as there is out there in the world, which is considerable. What is incredible in hearing what you're saying, the many factions and the deep-seated strong feelings that go back centuries in that part of the world. My question is, do you think that the U.S. should do a better job negotiating with Bashar al-Assad? Is that what you're suggesting? Of course. Yes, if I were president, I would call Bashar al-Assad tomorrow. You want to make, he's got to make some concessions. But in exchange for concessions, we need to welcome him back into the family of nations, and he'd be happy to make them. Among other things, they have um, at least, or, or they, there's a journalist named Austin Tice who is conceivably in the custody of the regime. Now, I know it's a high priority for the White House to get this guy, Austin Tice, back or to figure out what happened to him. Well, if we were willing to speak to the Syrian government, we could make progress on that issue, but we won't speak to them. But, you know, for, forget about the Tice situation. There's um, a, like a slow-motion implosion of that country, and in order to stop it, um, we have to engage the government. We have to, like, forget about um, forget about these crimes that are, have been alleged against the Assad regime, which are substantial and considerable. And, have to be investigated someday. But at the moment, people continue to die. 
and we want to stop the ongoing death. To do that, we really need to, um, first of all, there has to be a monopoly of force. And, the, and to give, um, like, the rebels the monopoly of force, we have no idea what would happen after that. But I have lived in a situation in which they have the monopoly of force. They, they um, kill vulnerable people. I was happened to be a vulnerable people. They didn't kill me, but other rebels killed other Americans, and they just take it out on whoever's nearest and and most like vulnerable. And you know, they they take it out on mentally handicapped people and women and children. It's just it's 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 terrible the way that the rebel governments behave. Now, visitors, I know that every once in a while, a visitor goes in and things look more or less okay, but deep down inside, they're not okay. It's a, it's a, it's like a Handmaid's Tale society in those rebel-controlled regions, and I know it's not great in the Bashar al-Assad part of the country either. But they're functioning schools, they're functioning universities, traffic police, um, you know, banks, um, magazines, newspapers, cafes. The society exi- exists. Um, you're not going to find like a proper functioning university under the new incarnation of Jabhat al-Nusra, which is called Hayat Tahrir al-Sham. They just teach like. The Quran, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, which is fine. It's good, but the kids also need like math. You know, they need biology. They're not going to get biology under Hayat Tahrir Sham. It's just they're not going to get the most basic facts about the world. They're going to get blind obedience and loyalty to the Quran, which is not what young people in the world need today. As you know, President Assad has been rare to sit down with Western reporters, but this from a couple of years ago, and my question is, you listen to this from a Dutch television network, whether or not the, what he is saying, that the people of Syria continue to support his government, is the case today. Let's listen. I think the majority of the people now support uh, their government, regardless of their political spectrum, uh, and they still support the unity of Syria and the integration of the society as one society with multicolor aspects. Now, we hear shelling every day, even here in Damascus, even close by to where we are now. Um, you say there's unity, the people believe in their government. Uh, are you still so confident, Matt? Yeah, more confident than before. Is that the case today, Theo Padnos? Um, listen, I think that in order to draw a proper conclusion about public opinion in Syria, there has to be some public opinion research, which there hasn't been. That cannot be at the moment, because it's, like, too dangerous for civilian, impartial civilians to wander around to the different neighborhoods. Um, yeah, I suppose you could make telephone surveys, but look, the the, the um, major issue in Syria is that people want peace. Um, the country has been polarized. Certainly half of it has been, it despises Bashar al-Assad. I mean, Actually, I don't know the statistics, but some significant number of the people, um, you know, they would like to see him hanged from the nearest tree. Um, and then some significant number of people hate the rebels so much that they want to hang all of those guys. Um, I, I guess I, I think the um, everybody wants peace. And when I was there, I, I haven't been there since 2014, but... but um, you know, the people that I talk to on the telephone, and I do talk to them every day, uh, they, in a sense, they would take ISIS. They would take Bashar al-Assad. They just want the violence to end. Um, and it's continuing, partly because they, the rebels have so many guns. It's like, why won't these rebels just give up their guns and come to the negotiating table? Well, I know the reason for that is because they say victory or death. They're going to fight until the bitter end. And, um, you know... They're they're going to they're going to force um, some more 
significant military power to come and kill them all, which we don't want that to happen. But that's the, the leadership among the rebels right now has that attitude. And, of course, you know, in, in such a situation, a lot of women and children are going to die. And as you well know, President Assad is quick to blame the U.S. This is from an April 2017 interview in which the Syrian leader says the U.S. is not serious about fighting terrorism. Let's listen to that. The United States and the West, they're not serious in fighting the terrorists. And yesterday, some of their statements were defending ISIS. They were saying that ISIS doesn't have chemical weapons. They are defending ISIS against the Syrian government and the Syrian army. Uh, so actually, you cannot talk about partnership between us who work against the terrorists and who fight the terrorism and the others who are supporting explicitly the terrorists. As you listen to that, can you explain to a Western audience what that's all about? Yeah, I mean, he is aware that the U.S. government has been sending tow missiles and other kinds of equipment um, that we don't have any idea about because it's all covert operations and tons of cash um, into Syria and in, into the hands of people who are named like Abu Hassan and Abu Hamza. And that's basically all we know about them. We really, uh, they go, I'm part of such and such a group. And today, that, and he produces perhaps a piece of identity paper that says he's part of such and such a group, but the next day he changes. And these um, weapons move around in Syria like little fishies. They go from, you know, from one pool to the next, and um, it's, uh, it's like a Middle Eastern bazaar as soon as you cross the border into Syria. Everything is for sale. And if it's not for sale, it can be stolen. And if it can't be stolen, you know, it can be, it can be you kill the owner, and then you take the, the stuff that he owns. And, of course, we know that all these weapons have eventually ended up, they were supposed to end up in the, in the hands of, like, the good rebels, and maybe they did. <laughs> but um, very soon thereafter, those weapons ended up in the hands of the bad rebels. And, those, and, and the young jihadis, by the way, that come in from Europe and America and all across the world um, to murder the Syrian law enforcement authorities. When I was in prison, I was in prison with maybe, with like, slightly more than a dozen of these law enforcement authorities, and most of those people were eventually killed or anyway disappeared. Their families are still looking for them six years later. Now, I suspect, I'm certain of it, that the military capacity that the U.S. government gave to these rebels enabled those killings. Um, so Bashar al-Assad is trying to defend his own law enforcement people, which he's entitled to do. Think of how crazy it would make us if a foreign government was sending um, weapons to the insurrectionists at the Capitol and saying, like, you guys, your problem is you don't have enough tow missiles. Well, why don't you, why you, here, we get some tanks for you. Night vision goggles. It would make us crazy, and we would go after the foreign government, and we would go after the rebels, of course, and that's what the Assad government is doing. And they've lost, you know, not hundreds of thousands, but tens of thousands of their own people. Um, like, the country is on its knees. And and um, so I, I, I think his complaint is legitimate. Like, why, what on earth is the Western, like, why, why are we supporting these rebel factions um, uh, allegedly, we feel that Bashar Assad is so bad that we can't, you know, we have to support the alternative. But the alternative is worse. I'm here to tell you. The alternative is much, much worse. More sinister. It's like they, they don't want to have a society, a functioning society. That, that The rebel people, the government there, their aim is to carry on the jihad forever and to export it. 
You know, that's, they're not interested in schools. They say, yes, we're a school, blah, blah, blah. It's nonsense. They just want to have war. Why? Because they like it. It's like they get the pickup trucks, they get cool guns, and they run around in the desert, and they, they're, you know, they say, yes, yes, we're going to have this just and beautiful society. But they, all the um, people who can help them build a just and, um, uh, like, decent and, and um, rights-cherishing society have fled. It's just too dangerous there. It's like they don't have running water. Every every in, in the households, in order to get water, you have to pay for it. You have to, you know, and the and the guy, it's got to be smuggled in a lot of times because they don't have potable water in the ground. So they need the most basic infrastructure, and they're not trying to build it. They're just trying to get more guns. So I don't believe them when they say, "Oh yes, yes, we're trying to construct a just society." I believe that they're trying to construct like um, more guns for themselves, and more pickup trucks, and carry on the jihad in the next city that will receive them. So based on all of that, how is President Assad able to maintain his grip on power as the leader of Syria? I mean, I believe that the Assad government maintains its grip on power because they have kind of a rump security apparatus that in the regions under its con- uh, under its control still functions. I mean, they can they uh they have managed to export like a large percentage of the rebel guys up into the northwest corner of the country in the Idlib province. So they've basically surrounded the rebel neighborhoods in Homs and Dera in the south and across the country. Wherever there's a rebel neighborhood, their strategy has been to surround them, force uh, the rebels to surrender, which they do. They get on these green municipal buses that um, used to move around Damascus, and they drive those buses up into the northwest corner of the country and drop off the rebels. And they are... Um, carrying on their rebel lives up there in the northwest corner. Everywhere else in the country is basically now at peace. So um, you ask how has he been able to maintain... Well, he's forced... He's militarily forced the rebels to surrender. And um, the ones who persist are supported by Turkey. So Turkey is able to, like... um, prevent the advance of the Syrian army into that northwest corner of the country because they have a superior military apparatus. We are talking with Theo Padnos. He is joining us from Vermont, a freelance writer and the author of the book Blindfold, a memoir of capture, torture, and enlightenment. And your story, your captivity for two years, a movie that came out in 2016 called Theo Who Lived. Here's the trailer. I was like a homeless journalist traveling around. I have SIM cards from like 25 different countries here. I was going to follow some refugees back into Syria, and I was going to write about the adverse conditions in the camps. And I thought, I'll write a lovely piece for the Republic, and my journalism career will prosper. And then without really thinking about it, I stood up and walked down and went to meet the people who kidnapped me at the hotel. They brought me into a room like this. Three of them sat down. They said, why don't you do an interview with this guy here? One guy kicked me right really hard in the face. And they're all stamping on me and kicking on me. Put on the handcuffs. They cuffed me behind my back like this. And they said, we're our prisoner now. Out there is the sun. This is the last time you'll see the sun. Do you understand? I said, yes. And then they ordered takeaway chicken and brought it in and had lunch. I called the FBI and I said, my son's missing in Syria. And the guy said, that's a dangerous place. I didn't ask him to go there. What do you expect me to do? They brought me down to the room of death. The two kids are on either side of me. One of them whispered, goes, we kill you. We kill you now. <laughs> Allah, Akbar! The 
place was clearly under attack and there'd be people down the hall being tortured. I was 200 days in this cell. I had to sleep diagonally like this. The guards, I was dependent on them for the air that I breathed. They're just young men. There's tons of food and guns and people to torture. I mean, most of them are having fun. There's a lot of fun in the jihad. It's very underrated in, in the West. Some of the guards stopped coming to my jail cell. I would ask, and they'd say, he's been martyred. Who killed him? Oh, Islamic State. I was interested in the grievances. It was bomb for hurt minds. It soothed the poison out of them. It calmed them down. You know, and try to remind yourself, I'm still alive. I'm still alive. I rescued something from the disaster of two years. And it was this story. And that story in the 2016 film and in your book, Blindfold, how did you survive? Um, I survived um, because they didn't kill me. I know that sounds like a um, cute answer, but the conditions were not as such that um, as they were, for instance, in the, in the concentration camps in World War II, where they wore you down from starvation and overwork. They, we, we had like a enough calories per day to survive on. We were hungry, but we weren't dying of starvation, and they never forced us to work. And so we survived because um, the bombs didn't happen to fall on our head. They fell nearby, but they didn't happen to fall on our head. And also because um, Jebat and Nusra, my captors, they eventually entered into a kind of a war with ISIS over the oil in Derador province, which is where all of Syria's oil is. It's in the east next to Umbar province in Iraq. And... Um, so the top Jebbath commander and the top ISIS commander basically declared war on one another. Jebbath eventually lost this war. They had to um, surrender these oil fields that they were in control of. Suddenly they had like no oil, which meant no money, and they had one hostage, me. Whereas ISIS had a ton of hostages, and they were in control of the banks in Mosul and the oil fields, and they were flush with cash. My guys said, geez, we better sell our prisoner to the highest bidder, Qatar stepped up. Probably, well, I can explain my fear. I, I don't know why they stepped up, but they did, and they paid my ransom, and I'm free. I can speculate with you as to why they, they paid my ransom. I mean, it's probably because they helped to cause the problem in the first place by sending all these crazy guns and money to, um, to the Syrian rebels, and their rebels went a little bit rogue and invented ISIS and started cutting off the heads of Western journalists, and we don't really like when that happens, and we ask the countries to intervene. And, of course, all of this chronicled in your book. I'm sure there were so many, but if you could point to one moment that was the darkest moment for you, what would it have been? Um, I mean, I, <laughs> I lived through many. I, the most horrifying moments probably occurred, you know, in the beginning when I was certain they were going to kill me. Like in the first few months, I just knew that uh, they, they, were, they were preparing to, to kill me. And every time they walked by my cell door, I was prepared for them to walk in with their knives. And they did do that a couple of times. And there was a bunch of fake executions. And I was just like waiting for them to, I don't know, get the permission from the commander. Because the individuals with whom I was in contact, they really seemed that like they... I was certain they genuinely did want to do it. They hated Americans that much. They just longed to to um, slit my throat. And I could see it in their eyes and in the way they spoke to me. And then I just believed it. Um, 
but um, anyway, I think I, I didn't want to give them the pleasure of doing this to me. I knew that they would enjoy it. They were enjoying just the everyday abuse. But I, I could tell that they wanted to um, really kill me in a, in a disgusting and prolonged and ag- agonizing way. And I, um, that, like when, when I, I was trying to escape from that um, fate, um, those were my darkest hours because I really didn't have any way to end it on my own. Like I could have grabbed one of their guns or something. Um, but I was just in a room with nothing on the floor and, you know, I had a, I had my blindfold with me and that was it. Um, you can read in my book, like what I, what my thoughts were like in those hours. I did, you know, I, I went to some extremes, um, which are easier to write about in a way than they are to speak about. So anyway, read about, read all about it in the book. Two final points. First of all, your own background. Where did you grow up? I grew up in um, Cambridge, Massachusetts, and Woodstock, Vermont. Let me conclude with this question based on your own experiences and what we've talked about today. What is Syria's future? Oh, gosh. Syria is in for a long, hard road. I, I hope and believe that one day um, the outside world, particularly the Western nations like the G7 and, and um, you know, will we'll say... We, on behalf of the people of Syria, we need to come to an accommodation with the Syrian government such that we resume diplomatic relations and we allow the students to study at foreign universities, come back and re-enrich the country with brain power. Um, they have like a huge brain drain going on there. But the, the near-term term future is grim. The lira is like tumbling into the toilet. Um, People don't have enough home heating oils. Like they, they don't have propane to make tea in the evenings or the morning. Um, everybody wants to leave. So the near-term future is, is more brain drain. And, uh, of course, like the more that the confidence and the togetherness of the country collapses, the more gangs take over the streets. So if you own anything, it belongs to the gang. Well, you get a nice pair of shoes? No, you don't. You don't have that. Somebody else takes it. You get a nice car? It's not yours for very long. Nobody wants to acquire things because they know they can't possess them. Um, Apartments. It's like you you try to rent an apartment. Well, actually, somebody comes along and says, get out of here. This is our place now. You piss off. And you don't have a choice because they have guns. It's like this way in the Assad-controlled regions. I know this because I speak to people who live there every day, and it's it's much worse in the... um, Regions controlled by the rebels because they really don't control very much. They they have less force, um, you know, and they operate symbolically. If if they catch one bad guy, they cut off his hand. But that leaves two hundred bad guys running around doing what they like. The book is called A Blindfold, a memoir of capture, torture, and enlightenment. Theo Padnos, a freelance writer. Thank you for allowing us to better understand Syria and that part of the world. We appreciate your time. Well, thanks so much for allowing me to talk to you. The book is titled Blindfold, and his 2016 movie, which also chronicles his time in Syria after being captured by al-Qaeda forces, it's titled Theo Who Lived. Don't forget to sign up so you never miss an episode of this podcast, The Weekly. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. Thank you for listening.